Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. So welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, that's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Caroline Ritter about Imperial Encore, the cultural project of the late British Empire. Uh, So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to speak with you. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm excited to be talking about uh, this absolutely fascinating book that is um, incredibly well-timed, I guess, on, on both sides of the ocean, actually, in the UK, you know, there's a huge reckoning um, around questions of empire and, and the kind of, um, I guess, kind of question of British modernity um, and empire. And I, I kind of get the impression that, you know, similar trends um, are going on with history as a kind of a general field um, as well, particularly British history. So the book speaks to both the kind of an urgent, I suppose, political moment but also uh, some some really important academic questions as well. And, and I guess the place to start with the book really is um, your, your kind of interest in writing about the British Empire and, and I guess almost the kind of like, what what is this object, the British Empire, that you were writing about? Yeah, um, I'm happy to get into it that way for sure. The history that I trace in this book unfolds over the decades of the 20th century in one particular region of the British world. Um, I'm looking at East and West Africa. However, when we hear that reference, the British Empire or the British world, it's referring to something that started long before the history I tell in this book begins, and to something that covers much more of the globe than just East and West Africa. For centuries, really for half a millennium, governing authorities in England have set out from their small island nation, gone to other parts of the world, and laid claim to ruling over the populations therein. And this was in the name of building an empire and to really cementing a British presence in these different corners of the globe. And so the phrase kind of the British empire, it's referring to all the territories, dependencies, and colonies that the British government was saying were theirs. But even there, you can you can even hear it in my answer that this single empire was quite eclectic. Um, it encompassed a very diverse range of territories, a very diverse group of people, and all of whom had their own histories and their own history of a relationship um, with Britain. And so I think what I'm trying to say is there's not, there's kind of, we refer to this one British empire, but we want to be careful not to, not to think that there's just one British imperial story. I suppose that's um, further developed by periodization and, and particularly, you know, the the late um, in the late British Empire uh, title of, of the book. And, and it'd be useful actually to, and, and you kind of referenced this already, to hear a bit about um, the kind of the time that you're writing about both, I guess, the kind of um, pre and post, you, you know, the sort of sense of the empire ending, because in some ways, you know, there are obviously kind of, demarcations when states become independent, but also um, the story of the end of empire isn't exactly kind of clean cut 
Very true. So I kind of pick up with this story um, at a time that that some would say the British Empire was at its zenith, um, at least in terms of more or less the size of territory under Britain's control. And these would be in the decades right after the First World War. But just because Britain controlled a great amount of territory did not mean there was a clear future for the empire in the minds of the British officials sitting in London. Instead, when they looked at their empire, they really saw kind of a lot of a lot of problems. Um, there were the fact that there were the old settler um, colonies, the sort of territories where white English speakers had traveled to, like, and then kind of established themselves, often um, displaced or demolished the local population. So I'm thinking here of places like Canada and Australia, places that wanted more kind of independence, um, more of an identity. And then there were more newly acquired territories in Asia and in Africa, where British officials were trying to establish their rule, but were facing a lot of political and economic discontent. And we're having to think, well, how can we really re-legitimize this sort of um, project of empire and really defend our, our kind of, in their minds, their right to be there and their right to rule over these populations? Sometimes in the history, the telling of the British empire looks at these decades, the 1930s and 1940s, and then the decades after the Second World War, as sort of the beginning of the end, as sort of an acceleration of decolonization when the British Empire was just falling into fragments, falling away. But I wanted to make the point in writing this book that that just because that's the political story doesn't mean that that's the whole story. And instead, at the same exact time that anti-colonial nationalism is on the rise and is experiencing a lot of success in places like East and West Africa, thinking of the 1950s and 1960s here. Those are the same exact moments that that non-official entities, entities like the BBC or like the British Council or even like private British businesses are, are moving into the kind of British territories in Africa and planning to stay there for quite some time, planning to really build a business, build a presence despite political independence. Yeah, I guess that, you know, the political story of empire and, you know, questions of kind of violent conquest or um, economic relationships, these kind of things are um, sort of reasonably well established um, in in both the literature and in, in popular discussions. But as you've alluded to, you know, we've got this cultural project um, of the British Empire as well. And as, as you mentioned, you know, the book talks about um, particularly the you know state and non-state uh, actors that carry out this this cultural project. And, and bef- before we kind of um, discuss them, sort of un- unpack their activities, it'd be good to hear it. A little bit more actually about the cultural project, both in terms of, I guess, the, as you've mentioned, the idea of you know the right to rule or the right to be in a place, um, but but also uh, I suppose more broadly because it's got lots of different ideas about um, you know the kind of not just the justification for being present in a, in a nation or, or a territory, but also the justification for kind of you know empire itself. So when thinking about how to to describe what is it's sometimes it's kind of it's a bit fragmented and it's a bit hard to pin down um, what I'm calling the cultural project. But what I'm really looking at here is 
what was becoming more and more of a conscious effort to establish British values, British traditions, British culture in a really explicit sense. So thinking about the British performing arts, um, literary works, and so on, and then also the English language to really put those on the ground and kind of get them established to the point that, that they would be able to withstand political change. And so what I mean by this is kind of an assumption that if a local population is speaking English and is going to watch Shakespeare, you know, on stage um, and is listening to um, BBC announcers reading the news, then that local population will will kind of have have kind of absorbed British values and British traditions to the point that even if their nation goes through um, political independence and becomes its own nation, they themselves, the individuals are still sort of marked by the fact that they were once ruled over um, by these, by these British rulers. Yeah. I mean, it's really striking actually um, throughout the book, there is um, obviously explicit um, imperial benefits of, um, some of the activities of BBC, of, of publishers, of, of the British Council, but also, you know, um, some of the uh, rhetoric and in some ways the kind of like almost the sort of imperial delusions that um, come through in, in justifying activities are, are really fascinating. And these shift over time and, you know, new ways are found to justify um, sometimes, you know, continuity and, uh, and sometimes difference. And, and I suppose the way to get into this um, is through the, the three case studies. So you've got, um, broadly speaking, um, Oxford University Press, but also the kind of publishing industry more generally, uh, the British Council, which um, I, I suppose we could think of as a kind of, um, you know, part of, of the state, but also kind of slightly separate from it. And then the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, which again, um, you know, is sort of has this funny relationship um, to the British state in, in a lot of different complex ways. So maybe we can start with the British Council. Um, and, and I suppose it's kind of like exporting of British culture um, in the era, um, at, you know, towards the kind of the end of, of empire. And, and to kind of, you know, double down on what I was alluding to, the sense of, of particularly kind of, you know, British culture, British values, um, that, that it's exporting. Um, sometimes, you, you know, um, in quite kind of subtle ways, but also sometimes in really kind of like ludicrously sort of explicit ways as well in, in terms of its kind of choices of what can be exported, who can go, these kinds of things. So the British Council, you know, its origins are, are, are kind of interesting. Um, this is a, as you referred to, kind of a a quasi-state organization, meaning um, its funding did and still does come, you know, from the British Treasury, um, and it has a close relationship with the sort of foreign policy aims of the British government. But its origins were it was always meant to be a non-political and explicitly cultural institution. After the First World War, a group of British businessmen and government officials in the Foreign Office started to look around and started to see that Britain's European competitors, thinking of the French, thinking of the Germans, 
we're doing a much better job at really explicitly selling their culture overseas. And they started to push for Britain to basically match what its what its international competitors were doing. Um, the kind of official sort of royal charters language of the British Council at this time um, says that it's a institution that's supposed to promote the British arts, um, promote British culture, and promote the English language in kind of all corners of the world. And so what this means is that the kind of early days of the British Council, this is an institution where the people who work there get to kind of decide what they want to define as British culture, what they want to define as the sort of the British arts worth promoting in this sense. And what they land on is a fairly narrow understanding of culture. Um, So in kind of each of the sort of areas that they're trying to sort of work in, they really focus on what they see as a refined and of good taste type of culture, but one that's, that's only reflecting a very small kind of portion of, of kind of true British culture at the time. Um, I, in order to sort of pare down kind of all the examples I could look at, I choose to focus quite a lot on drama export and the different um, theatrical troops that the British Council was was sending on tours overseas um, to do these performances for overseas audiences. And what I noticed is that when you start to look at the kind of discussions going on within the hallways of the British Council about who they should sponsor and which um, which plays, which performers they should sponsor to go overseas, they keep landing on the same answers over and over again. Um, it's really a lot of Shakespeare, um, some Shaw, um, not much else. And um, they really only want to support kind of what they see as the best of the best, um, the kind of best um, uh, theatrical groups in Britain. Um, in terms of audiences that they feel deserve these very kind of high caliber performances, they're also kind of really um, kind of high-minded and quite um, oriented towards elite audiences overseas. And so the first few decades of the British Council, it's mostly sending sending drama to the Western world, to Australia, um, to Europe, to places where they feel audiences would be able to understand the kind of, kind of high-quality, high-caliber um, British culture that they're essentially selling. And that's the image of Britain that the British Council is most interested in promoting in these early decades, really in um, this kind of period from the 1930s, 1940s, even into the 1950s. The big question then is going to be, well, well, what's going to happen with decolonization when suddenly Britain has to try to appeal in a new way to parts of the world that very recently they were repressing and ruling over sometimes quite violently. How are they going to win over those audiences? And will this same kind of type of culture do the trick? You know, will the old Vic performing Shakespeare plays, um, will that work the same way it maybe did in France as um, would that have the same effect if um, kind of trying to win over audiences, say in East Africa or West Africa? And the answer quite quickly by the 1960s is no, this is going to take a different set of performers, a really a different understanding of what British culture is 
and and how British culture can be consumed. And that moment, the kind of early 1960s facing decolonization, it's almost a moment of reckoning for a lot of the people who worked at the British Council, who suddenly have to think, oh, you know, gosh, if we want to remain relevant in this sort of changing world, we're going to need to change not just how we work, but but really the the way we're defining what British culture is. I mean, at, at the risk of skipping directly to the um, penultimate chapter of, of the book, it, it's incredibly fascinating how the British Council has, even as it, you know, kind of quite radically changes, as, as you've mentioned, you know, the, the kind of the type of culture it's exporting and in some ways, you know, tries to shift its own internal sense of, of cultural hierarchy, how it still has a kind of like a sort of a liberal commitment to a project that is British culture. And yet by the end of the period in the book, and, and I mean, you know, coming up to to the present day as well, that the British Council is is much more an organization that is essentially kind of exporting teaching English as a second language than it is exporting culture. And, it, and it'd be interesting to hear, I guess, the kind of um, the evolution of the end of the liberal project of exporting British culture. I think that, and this was something that in in trying to kind of pin down and, and trying to really articulate my argument, I know I, I spent quite a lot of time thinking about as well, which is how to to make it clear that as much as there's talk about the need to change this cultural kind of mission, the need to change kind of how these British institutions, the British Council in this case, or or we can talk about the BBC later on or others, um, how they're kind of treating their audiences, relying on their audiences in new ways um, after Empire's End, that also at the same time doesn't doesn't displace the the kind of liberal imperial origins of this whole this whole project of wanting to to spread English and spread British culture around the world. That in itself, it it always will have those imperial roots. And I use that kind of in the present tense because it's really still happening today, still happening through the British Council, as you mentioned, the British Council's activities in in teaching English um, in different parts of the world to this day. Um, That always is going to be an imperial mission, um, regardless of what form it takes, regardless of how many decades have passed since uh, the end of the um, kind of formal empire. And I suppose what's really kind of notable and interesting is um, in some ways the kind of lamenting of the kind of commercialization almost of, of the British Council's role and uh, you know the kind of rise of new forms of management and questions about kind of you know spending and and then against the backdrop of the continued imperial project of of cultural exports and this I, I suppose is sort of present but is much more um, kind of explicit in terms of commercial engagements with the story of of publishing so I, I think I mentioned you know OUP Oxford University Press is is the kind of crucial story but actually that there's quite a lot going on with these two um, characters, I suppose, that are central, uh, Charles Richards and then Rex Collins. And I wonder if you could maybe tell me their stories as, as ways of sort of telling the story of uh, commercial book publishing as a cultural project of the late British Empire. Um, certainly, I would, I would be happy to speak about, about each of them. 
Um, and both of those um, individuals who you mentioned are individuals who I kind of introduce um, in the discussion in the book as people who really by factor of their location and their longevity of their careers end up being kind of um, firsthand witnesses to some of the, the changes and the transformations that I'm tracing between the late colonial period and then the first decades after African independence. Um, so the first of the two uh, men who you named, um, who you kind of readers start to meet, is a man named Charles Granston Richards, who thinks of himself as kind of one of the first publishers in operation in East Africa. And he first arrives to East Africa in the middle of the 1930s, looks around him and says, there's absolutely no you know, book industry, no publishing industry, what to speak of here. Therefore, it's going to be the job of British individuals to import one and kind of put one on the ground. Um, I sort of say this, um, making the point that that Charles Richards, you know, he was blind, certainly, to um, many components of sort of African business, the African book trade um, that had been kind of flourishing for for decades, centuries, even um, before he'd arrived. But he came in with his kind of very specific sense of what what a successful book trade would look like and how to get there. So Charles Richards first um, is he actually is is working with missionaries. He's working with the Church Missionary Society. Um, in East Africa, and they begin publishing first religious texts and then start to make an effort to publish um, more secular types of materials as well. After the Second World War ends, the British government sort of hears wind of this um, effort and wants to become much more involved in, in book production in East Africa. And they kind of turn to Richards as an individual who can who can help lead a new phase of, of publishing in the region, um, one that's that's funded and that works quite closely with the aims of the British colonial government. So starting in the mid-1940s and going to the early 1960s, Richards works through something called the East African Literature Bureau, which is meant to really kind of jumpstart a book publishing industry, basically pick up from the sort of scattered publications that missionary presses had been doing and formalize the process much more, have a process of kind of a um, editorial board choosing what to publish, um, an editing process, an illustration process, and just kind of being able to mass produce books um, much more quickly and in much larger numbers. And this is meant to be helping the overall kind of aims of the British colonial government because those books are then going to go into colonial schools or those pamphlets on soil erosion or um, preventing the spread of malaria or whatever they might be will then help other kind of British colonial um, offices serve whatever um, their particular um, policies and functions are. The East African Literature Bureau in a way is quite successful. Um, It really is kind of producing all of these different publications of different forms. But Charles Richards doesn't want it to be just a government institution. He wants it to be something that's really leading straight into a thriving, competitive commercial trade. 
And this interesting thing starts to happen, which is whenever a title that the East African Literature Bureau is producing appears to be profitable, then the East African Literature Bureau tries to basically sell the rights of that title to a a private firm and say, hey, you can take this over, um, continue to publish it, and now make money off of it. We kind of did the groundwork. You can now pick up the ball and keep going. And when I refer to these private British firms, um, they're private firms, what I'm really referring to are British companies, whether you're speaking about Oxford University Press or Longman's or Macmillan's or really kind of a myriad of others, you're speaking about the efforts of British firms located in London or in other cities in the UK who are now looking to sub-Saharan Africa and seeing a potential market there, seeing school children who are entering primary schools and secondary schools who need books to read and thinking we can make money there. And look, you know, now we've already kind of got a few titles in hand. Let's just keep running with this. So Charles Richards, um, he ends up really moving from one sort of phase of the British publishing um, industry in East Africa to another. He starts as a missionary. He moves to be kind of working in this colonial development bureau. And then he even right at Kenya's independence goes to work for Oxford University Press for their Kenya office to help get that office off the ground and, and kind of help in the private side of publishing. By the end of his career, he sees himself in his words, as bringing the book to Africans. Although um, he, again, as I as I mentioned in the beginning, has a rather uh, limited kind of understanding of, of what type of book trade he, he wanted to kind of impart into this region of the British Empire. I think of the second individual you mentioned, Rex Collins, as essentially Richard's successor or the next generation of British publishers who who start to work quite closely um, in in a region like East Africa. In fact, actually, Rex Collins did work for um, Richards for a little while, um, so they did overlap briefly. Rex Collins, though, is coming from a different background. He is coming to work in East African and West African, in African publishing, um, knowing that that the British kind of formal presence in these regions is about to end and knowing that that's going to mean a lot of political change that's really going to impact his work. Rex Collins wants to essentially see that the books that were being produced earlier, which had mostly European authors, are now going to have a more of a mix of authors. He wants to really help get more African authors into um, the book list, the catalogs of companies like Oxford University Press. And he also knows that he's now in this position where he has to kind of walk a finer line in terms of the economic profits that his employer is demanding that Oxford University Press wants to see from its kind of local office in a place like East Africa. And the the sort of political challenges that the African national states are are going to pose to him. Um, so he, and he's really, Rex Collins I'm using here is just one example of many British publishers in the 1960s and 1970s who are trying to prove that they 
that they have good intentions in wanting to continue to dominate the um, publishing industry and the book market in um, in uh, Africa, even though um, British imperialism by this point is over. There's no British government in place to help them out on the ground in Nairobi or in any of these cities and who, um, you know, they're going to have to now form kind of political inroads with African ministers, African political parties, and convince them that they're not just kind of neo-colonial overlords trying to profit off of, um, off of African populations and African um, book buyers. Collins his way of doing this, his particular manner, um, method of doing this, as I mentioned before, a lot of it really relied on authorship, on saying, yes, we might be continuing to publish all the textbooks that are appearing in primary and secondary schools in, in Kenya and in Tanzania and in Nigeria and so on, but we are also really guiding this new generation of African authors to international audiences. We're in his words, he liked to say he was discovering these new authors um, and then really editing their works, um, publishing them in a form that will reach audiences, not just in Africa, but in the UK, in the US, in other parts of the world, and help African authors kind of reach international acclaim. And Collins, you know, he has, if you look at his book list, if you look at his work as a publisher, he he can certainly point to um, individuals who are really beginning their career then, who then go on to become some of some of the really big names in, in this first generation of post-colonial writing. Um, but he's always doing it knowing that the profits from the books that he's helping to produce are, are ending up back in, in Oxford University Press's hands back in the UK um, and are rarely really being distributed to these um, national economies and local economies on the ground in the regions where he's working. I think there's a really nice distinction that you've drawn out and actually the book draws out between, I suppose, a kind of um, what these organisations and and to an extent what these individuals kind of think they're doing um, and then what they actually end up um, kind of doing. And and I think, yeah, the, the sort of, you know, literally missionary zeal um, of, of publishers that you know to an extent kind of gets replaced um, or at least is altered by commercial pressures um, but ends up you know having a similarly kind of imperialist mi- mission is really clearly present with the story of the BBC um, and the story of the BBC is, is, is the kind of centerpiece um, of, of the book really and, and I think brings together many of the themes we, we've already discussed. Uh, and I guess if there was one question to ask about uh, the BBC from the book, it would be, what is the distinction between the BBC's actions and then what the BBC kind of thought it was doing um, through a series of both, you know, kind of uh, policy um, documents and, and almost kind of proclamations, and then its actual activity in terms of its relationship to its audiences. I'm glad to hear you ask about the BBC, and I will say that the BBC and the broadcasting part of this history was the first part of this um, of this kind of project that that I it's what I started with, and then kind of built out um, the the whole what became the book from there. What I noticed, um, whether looking at broadcasting during the late colonial period or looking at broadcasting after African independence, I noticed, really anybody would notice um, this sort of 
overwhelming um, presence of the BBC. When British colonial officials wanted to sort of first start to use broadcasting as a tool, a tool of education, yes, but also a tool of government, a tool of control in their African colonies um, in the late colonial period, they turned to BBC officials and asked for their advice, asked for um, help knowing kind of how to build this infrastructure, even took a lot of the BBC content and then um, relayed it over kind of local um, networks in West Africa and in East Africa. And that relationship, that sort of very kind of entwined role of the BBC in this this late colonial period when anti-colonial nationalism is really growing and when you you aren't hearing a lot of good things being said about, about um, British authorities, say, during the 1950s, um, would lead maybe one to think that that right after independence, the BBC would basically disappear from African radio sets, that African listeners would no longer want to hear um, British announcers and receive pronunciation accents um, coming to them um, from London. And instead, what I found is that that very shortly after independence, in places like in Ghana, in Nigeria, in Kenya, there is a continued demand to continue um, to pick up the, the signal from the UK. And that the BBC actually not just sort of has a, a scattered audience, but does start to to have a growing audience of um, individuals who who seek out what they describe as kind of the most truthful or um, the most reliable or um, or kind of the most up-to-date news. So what I've just described there, some of that language, the most truthful, the most reliable, that um, it's not hard to find, that appears everywhere in, in BBC kind of documents um, from this time and and personal accounts of British broadcasters saying, you know, look what we were doing. We continue to provide the truth, the real truth um, over the airwaves. But I don't want it to, to seem just completely accidental or completely benign. And I want to make the point that that the BBC does make these claims and they are receiving this evidence from listeners who are continuing to listen to them. Um, but they're also really reinforcing and contributing to that story um, all the more. When the BBC chooses to conduct, for example, an audience survey of listeners in Africa, it doesn't conduct ever a really truly kind of widespread and and scientifically determined kind of um, randomized sample. Instead, it just turns to individuals who had written to the BBC to already say how much they loved BBC programs. And it turns to them and says, Know, tell us how much you love the BBC. And that that becomes this sort of self-generating audience report for the BBC that lasts for decades. So although the BBC certainly does have an audience um, and certainly is reaching a portion of the of the population in Africa, it's it's never that interested in in truly measuring how widespread um, Britain's kind of reputation and, and impact is, it's really in a way almost more interested in just kind of continuing to reinforce that um, mentality that that Britain is continuing to kind of act as this sort of crucial role, um, a kind of crucial node in a network between um, different parts of the world. 
I mean, it, it, it's funny in a way because you mentioned, you know, that kind of sense of the BBC given, you know, how would you almost, you, you know, the kind of contemporary voice of authority, um, whether it's, you know, conducted through an RP accent or, or conducted um, in ways that are more attentive to, to local audiences. But actually, you know, and again, what, what you described in terms of how the BBC uh, <laughs> was kind of slightly misleading itself. Uh, even as it tried to kind of reposition itself, is something that I guess is still still with us today. And and, and one of the things that uh, you know really stands uh, stands out about the book, and, and I was really left with was the sense of you know the imperial endeavour being still with us today. And you know currently in Britain there are uh, political arguments over its aid budget. There are kind of major issues about things like the viability of the British Council in, in a post pandemic world. Um, there are, you know, highly politicised discussions about the role and the future of the BBC. But yet, I think the kind of the imperial project and the imperial endeavour is is still around. And and I wonder, you know, it's sort of slightly. Uh, there are no lessons from history, and you know, we should never kind of treat history books through the lens of so what does it say about contemporary life? But uh, but I wonder if you could say what your book says about contemporary life. Right. Um, you're not answering or you're not finishing with an easy one, are you? Um, no, I think that I mean, I think this is certainly the pressing question and the question that I want I want readers of this book to to be left really thinking about. One of the things I've been struck with in the politicized debates about the future of the BBC World Service and the future of the British Council, um, and even the kind of whether there needs to be kind of continued push um, to to spread the um, English language teaching around the world. With all of those, one of the things I've been really struck by is the moldability of this sort of sense of global Britishness, of a an identity that is, in one sense. Um, really trying to present itself as very inclusive that that populations all over the world can can join in can can speak english with one another and can listen to the bbc and part of again that kind of that old sort of liberal imperial mission but there's also a a national kind of project at the heart of it that britain wants to to lay claim to or take credit for um this role that um, you know, the BBC people who listen to it are listening from all parts of the world, but they know they're listening to Britain. And people who go take English lessons at the British Council could be learning English um, for whatever reasons, but but know that this is a language that sort of originated in Britain. And that national pride, it's always there, and it's it's the underlying kind of thing that isn't always said, but is is there during the the political debates and and the kind of questionings about about um, where we're going to go in a post pandemic world, but also a post Brexit world, and and what's going to really happen to that global British brand essentially, um, and how kind of much it's going to be cognizant and and reflective of its historical roots, or how much it's going to sort of become a, a kind of benign sort of phrase that's thrown around um, without ever really being interrogated. And in terms of those uh, questions, is that what you're going to be working on next or kind of um, understandably, as as many uh, in Britain are, are you kind of quite 
quite sick of hearing about Britain's kind of, you know, delusions of imperial grandeur as they uh, manifest themselves in, in contemporary politics today. Have you got a very different historical project or are you going to be um, kind of working on, I guess, you know, what is potentially a kind of a, an even richer uh, case study of culture and empire? I think that I'm going to continue to be asking really many of these same questions. You know, the the dates I'm looking at might change, but some of the questions, as you as you were pointing out, the questions um, haven't haven't gone away, um, nor have they been answered fully in a satisfying way. I I think from from my work on this project, um, one particular direction I I want to continue to work in um, and look at is um, especially thinking about, like I was referring to, this sort of sense of global Britishness, especially looking at language um, and looking at kind of how the commercialization that I was speaking of, whether thinking about book markets or um, the kind of competition that arises over who's going to be providing English lessons, um, who's going to be kind of, you know, setting up this sort of online courses for English if we take it into the 21st century um, to see how those um, kind of come straight into into um, conflict with one another, that old liberal imperial mission, and then that commercialization, especially um, in, in the 21st century.